Okay, so we often start out reminding you of fundamentals. And today I want to hit one of our fundamentals up front because it's really important. It's tied closely to our message today. And that is that fundamental we remind ourselves that it is okay to not be okay. If you look around here, there are no perfect people at Four Mile, I can assure you that. Every one of us are in process at some level or another. So as we start to unpack all of this stuff with marriage, if you're a husband out there, you might be thinking to yourself, man, I got a lot of shortcomings here. Or if you're a wife, you may actually conclude the same thing. You may also have gone through some really difficult times in your marriage. You may have gone through a separation. You may have gone through a divorce. There's no judgment here. It's okay to not be okay. But none of us want to stay in that not okay place, which is why we turn to the truth. And we're going to see what Paul shows us today about husbands and wives and how it is that we can restore marriages and how it is that we can move forward with them. So we're going to jump into this thing, but I just want that to be in the front of your mind as we move forward. So as you know, we're in the middle of this um, opening line that Paul writes in chapter 5 where he says we're to imitate God by walking in love. And that's not something that we can do by ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul tells us we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so when we think about what that means, that's not something that just happens to us. That's something that we actively participate in. And we keep using this phrase middle voice because it captures the essence of how it is that we respond to the counsel of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In fact, we sang a song last week for response time where the first part of that song was basically Jesus singing over us and the second half of the song was our response to him. That demonstrates the middle voice. We don't sit there passively, we're actively engaged and all that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. And then Paul gave us three really good examples of how we can do this, through praising, giving thanks, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And of course, when we think about the submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's a challenge. That's something that we need a few more examples on. So Paul gives us a couple more examples. He talks about wives and husbands. Then he goes to children and parents. Then he goes to servants and masters. That's basically the workplace. And so we're in the middle, of course, of looking at wives and husbands and how wives are supposed to submit to their husbands out of obedience to the Lord and for the sake of unity. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Now, when we think about Christ's love for the church, Paul tells us that it has some dimensions to it. Width, length, height, depth. In fact, it's impossible to fathom Christ's love for us, so much so that he gave himself up for her, for the church, to justify her. How did he do that? We left heaven. He came down as a child, born as a child. All the temptations of this world went off to the cross to shed his blood for us so that we could be born again into a new life in Christ and we could receive the Holy Spirit. But he didn't just stop there, as we learned last week. He loves her so much that he also sanctifies her with his word and with his Holy Spirit, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, because he will one day glorify her, make her perfectly holy without blemish, removing all final sin, so that the church, all God's beloved children, can be his bride when he comes again the second time. And that could literally be any day now. It's a very exciting prospect. That's the doctrine of salvation in a nutshell. And Paul's helping us 
to now apply it to our lives. And he does this by iterating back and forth between husbands and wives and Christ and the church. So to teach wives how to submit to their husbands, Paul refers to how the church submits to Christ. And to teach husbands how to love their wives, Paul used the example of how Christ loves his church. And then a little later in this passage, Paul will use marriage to illustrate stuff about Christ and the church. So Paul uses this back and forth to help our perspective on both the church and marriage evolve so that we can see both of them from God's perspective, the truth about how he designed them to work so that he could be personally involved in all of it. That's what spirit-filled living is all about. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. Because just as the Holy Spirit fills believers as he unites them in the church, he also fills believers as he unites them in Christian marriage. This is God's design for how unity is to unfold in the context of the church and in the context of Christian marriage. And when we submit in obedience to God's design, it puts us in step with his will and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. This is a truth that we must begin to grasp because it changes absolutely everything when you live life filled with the Holy Spirit. So we continue our study on Paul's teaching today as he writes, so in the same way, meaning so in the same way that Christ loves his church, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That's a pretty interesting twist, isn't it? Husbands, have you ever thought of your wife in that way before, that she's a part of your body? I mean, in a physical sense, kind of like an arm or a heart or an ear, or as my wife reminds me, a brain. Sometimes I don't really have a good one, so she's my brain. Do you see her that way? Do you see your wife physically a part of you? Is that your perspective on her? Because that's what actually happened when you got married and you made those vows before the Lord. God now sees you as one, and that's because he's joined you together that day that you were married. The Gospel of Mark records Jesus teaching this truth. He writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, it's no longer two people, but rather one flesh, united before God. And God is the one who joined them together. It's his doing, so this isn't something that's up for debate, it's a truth. And this truth must inform our perspective, causing our view to evolve about Christian marriage. Because when we see marriage the way God does, dissolving that union isn't something that we could ever take lightly. In fact, it should be every bit as hard to decide to separate from your spouse as it would be to make the decision to cut your arm off. Because you and your spouse are joined together as one flesh. You're part of the exact same body. And wives, you may say, well, you don't understand. My husband is impossible to live with. And that's probably because your husband 
is not loving you the way Christ loves the church. And husbands, you may say, you try to love my wife. She's impossible to live with. Well, that's probably because she's not submitting in her marriage the way that the church submits to Christ. And that's because we so often don't have God's perspective that husbands and wives are actually one flesh now. And so you say to each other, well, this isn't working. I'm not happy, so let's just split up. But the truth is that splitting up is every bit as painful and messy as lopping off an arm. It not only changes everything in your life, but it's a decision you get to live with for the rest of your life. So the solution isn't split up. It's to start doing marriage the way God designed it, by submitting and by loving. I had a friend describe his divorce to me as this never-ending unwinding like this braided rope. It just never comes completely unwound. Not a day goes by where he says he's not reminded that his ex-wife is still every bit a part of him. Whether it's something with their children, an upcoming holiday, a shared memory, even though he's remarried now, he says it's so clear that he and his ex-wife are supposed to be one body. He wishes they would have worked it out, that they would have known then what they know now, not that they're on the other side of things, that it's no different in this new relationship. It's no better. In fact, things are just different now. In his new marriage, it's every bit as hard. It's just a completely different set of challenges. You see, it's the truth. Married couples are one before the Lord, just like a braided rope. When you split up, you live the rest of your life trying to unwind that rope. Or perhaps think about it like an amputee of sorts. That's the way you live the rest of your life since you're one flesh, handicapped because a part of you has been cut out. You're never the same as you were before. Why? Because God declared to become one flesh. And that's why Paul is teaching husbands that they must love their wife as their own body. And wives, that they submit to their husbands as to the Lord for the sake of unity. So it then follows naturally, if they are one body, he who loves his wife loves himself. Loving or choosing to care for oneself is a requirement to survive. It's what we have to do to stay alive. It's why we drink water, eat food, sleep, seek shelter, or the warmth of clothing. So husbands who love their wives with agape love, the type of love we've been talking about, do so with the exact same spirit of self-preservation. Meaning, when they get married, they actively choose to care for their wife like they do themselves, because it's actually part of their survival now, since the two are one flesh. They need each other to stay alive. And remember, this is not a comment about feelings. It's about choice, because love is an act of the will, as we've learned. So husbands must choose to love and care for their wives, just as they choose to love and care for themselves. And then Paul goes on, to describe this issue of caring for oneself in even greater detail. He writes, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. What a tremendous choice of words here. 
nourish and cherish. So husbands, we probably need to know what those words mean because that's what we're supposed to be doing for our wives. But wives, you also need to know what it means to be nourished and cherished by your husbands because you need to know what to expect. It might even cause you to change your view on submission. Maybe from something that you do simply out of obedience to Christ, which is perfectly fine and a reason to do it in and of itself, but it might actually change you to doing something that's willful on your part out of a sense of joy because that's actually what does happen whenever we are obedient to Christ. So let's all pay particularly close attention here. In the original language, nourish means to feed or sustain, and it's often used in the context of food. But it also carries another important meaning, to train up to maturity. So when taken together, husbands are to feed or sustain their wives such that their wives mature, so that they grow up to reach their potential. That is the objective of nourishing your wife. And training up to maturity means this involves nourishing the entire human ecology, body, mind, heart, and soul. So just as husbands care for his own physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being, so too must he take care to nourish his wife in these regards so that she can too reach her potential. Because the two of you are one flesh. She's a part of your body now. So you don't mature unless she does too. And of course, nourishment is an ongoing process. It never ends. So it requires continual devotion. So husbands, this is a question you must ask yourself. Are you nourishing your wives like this? Are you intentional each day about feeding her in all aspects, body, mind, heart, and soul, so that she reaches her potential? Now, I would argue that you can't fully know how effective you're being unless you talk to her about it. And I know most of the husbands are out there are like, oh, no, you didn't go there. That's right. You've got to talk to her about it. Don't neglect these discussions just because the kids got to go to practice or because the game's on. Husbands, these talks are vital. Ask your wife today if you're providing the kind of nourishment that she needs. And then listen. I know that's hard listening, even when it gets hard, which it most likely will. But remember, you're doing this to be filled with the Spirit. This is what Spirit-filled living is all about. And while you're at it, talk about cherishing too, because it's every bit as important. In fact, for most couples, you probably even said this word cherish in your wedding vows. I, John, take you, Nancy, to be my wife, and I promise before God and all these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death us do part, According to God's holy law, this is my solemn vow. You see, it's no accident that love and cherish are in the same line 
and our wedding vows. It can be linked directly to the scripture that we're studying here today. And notice how we promise to do this before Almighty God. That's why we cannot take our vows lightly. We never make a vow before Almighty God that we are not intending fully to commit. And also notice that marriage union is for life till death us do part. So when we make that vow, it goes all the way to the end. And that's why it's so important that we know what this word cherish means. In the original language, cherish means to warm, as in clothes. So we have food with nourish, and now clothing with cherish. But cherish also means to foster, or to give tender love and care, to look after someone. So cherishing goes a bit beyond nourishing because it conveys the sense of fondness that we have for a person. That from within us, we care deeply for them, genuinely, profoundly, that they really matter to us, so much so that we pretty much do anything for them. That's what it means to cherish your wife. We don't want to just feed them, we want them to feel our warmth for them. For them to know that they're loved unconditionally as we foster them, giving tender love and care, looking after them because we cherish them. So let me now ask husbands again, do you cherish your wife? Seriously, think about that question in the context of these, this definition. Do you cherish your wife? So if after you asked her today whether she feels as though you're nourishing her, ask her if she feels if you're cherishing her. And wives, be honest. Speak truth with grace and commit together to get after this for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part, because this is according to God's holy law. It's how he designed it, and you made a solemn vow before him to uphold it. So husbands, nourish and cherish your wives. How? How we nourish and cherish our wives? Just as Christ does the church. Paul comes right back there because we are members of his body. Notice how he bounces back, this back and forth. It's so important that we see it, and it's for good reason, because this is actually the main problem. It's not about the husbands and wives issue. It's actually a bigger thing. Husbands and wives so often don't behave according to God's design because they don't know this truth, that Christ nourishes and cherishes his church, and we are all members of his church his body, every single beloved child of God, all those who have been born again are members of his body. This is the single highest calling you'll ever be a part of. I don't care what degrees you have. I don't care what affiliations you're a part of. There's nothing grander than being a member of the invisible church because it means, first of all, that you will be nourished by the Savior and Lord of the world. He will feed and sustain you as he trains you up to maturity to reach your full potential. He does this by placing his Holy Spirit within you to fill you and by giving you his word so that you can be sanctified, progressing in holiness. It's absolutely everything you need to get through that narrow gate up there on that well-lighted path you see on the side wall. And the reason we know this is the biggest problem is because people only come to church 1.2 times per month. 
So they miss out on nourishment every single week. It's also because they don't read their scripture very often, usually only cracking and open whenever there's some sense of guilt. And so they miss the nourishment that comes from opening your Bibles all the time. And because they continually grieve the Holy Spirit of God by living in unrepentant sin. And because they quench the Holy Spirit of God by ignoring his counsel or failing to acknowledge his presence. And because they don't submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives don't submit to their husbands. Husbands don't love their wives. And so God's beloved children are not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not nourished. And so they don't progress in holiness. It's why half of all marriages, to include Christian marriages, in fact, Christian marriages are slightly higher. That's why half of them all end in divorce. Because people don't have the vaguest perception that Christ desires to nourish his church with his spirit and with his word. Likewise, believers fail to grasp that Christ also cherishes his church. Do you know that Jesus cherishes each and every one of you? Because it says right here that he does. He cherishes his church. So maybe you're thinking, if he cherishes me so deeply, then why am I suffering so much with pain, disease, and so many broken relationships in my life? Well, because he's going to do whatever it takes to get you through that narrow gate up there. You are one of his beloved children, and he's going to get you through that gate. That's how much he loves you. Remember, it is not at all about your happy. Don't ever believe that lie. It's all about your holy. This is serious business. Eternity is at stake. He will not fail. If you're born again, you're getting through that gate up there because those he justifies, he sanctifies. And those he sanctifies, he glorifies. So maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, wait a minute. You mean this disease I have is a chastisement from God to make me holy? Well, not necessarily, but it could be. Ask yourself, are you one of those people who are constantly living in the state of grieving the Holy Spirit? Are you somebody who quenches him all the time? Because guess what? He's going to get your attention. We know this truth here, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, including sickness and disease. You see, Christ's love for his church is irresistible, so stop resisting it. Besides, our illnesses, all these things, they don't really matter because one day we're going to have perfectly holy bodies. They're going to be perfect. No disease, no failure. That's why we look forward to his second coming. What a gift, a blood clot or a bad lab result or an unexpected diagnosis or some relational challenge, what it can be. It's so good for us sometimes if it causes us to turn toward Christ, to seek his face, and then to experience his love. Because when we begin to grasp his love for his church, just how wide, how long, how deep, and how high it is, that he provides nourishment for all those who he cherishes, and that you are among those who the Savior and Lord of the world cherishes, he even made you born again. When you start to grasp that, you won't have any problems submitting to your husband or loving your wife, because it's God's design. It's in step with his will. It brings him glory, and he fills us with his spirit when we do it. And we need the Holy Spirit to get us ready for that second coming. When we go through that narrow gate up there, 
It's the most exciting thing we have to look forward to as Christians, spending eternity in God's presence. It's an amazing gift. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and for your Holy Spirit. We're grateful that you love us as members of your body, the church. We're grateful that you nourish us. We're grateful that you cherish us. Would you help us to live out your love for us as we love others? Wives submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church. Prepare us, we pray, to be your bride. Give us a hunger and thirst for all things holy, no matter the cost. And give us a desire to burst through that gate into your glory in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and without blemish. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen.